You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. So what we would like to share with our students is how the body itself is wonderfully designed, works beautifully. We all as children sat, ran, squatted with no pain or discomfort. Life teaches us habits, not all of them good ones. And if we can shed some of those, we come closer to the ease and freedom that we had when we were younger. And it's a wonderful feeling. Let the body occupy all the space it's entitled to. It's not just people want to avoid talking about sexual assault with young people or dating violence or eating disorders with young people. We don't know how. We don't know what our resources are. And I think the idea here was to not only give people information, valuable, clear, accurate information, and to bust through myths and things like that, but to give people an opportunity to think about what they can do. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard, of Shepherd Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 98, Finding Voice, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 28, 2013. Today's guests include Judith Cornell, teacher of the Alexander Technique, and Kathy Plord, founder of Adverb Productions at the University of New England. When we lose our voice physically, that fact is plain. A touch of laryngitis and we're forced into a state of semi-whisper, working hard so that others might hear us. When we lose our voice metaphorically, others may not realize it at all. Until, one day, we start talking again. At that point, it can be painfully loud, or at least loud by comparison. Then people are startled. Our newfound voice isn't always welcomed. It can be hard for others to want to hear. But sometimes, others are more than willing to hear us. We just need to find the right audience. Then, gaining strength from an appreciative audience, we are able to use our voice anywhere, at any time. Even if our voices dance uncomfortably in the ears of those around us. If we have the strength to keep using our voice, we may have the chance to use it as a tool with which we may help others perhaps others who have no voice, or perhaps others whose voices are not like ours. Our voice, after all, is part of who we are. It has been given to us by the energetic life force that some call God. Our voice is our gift. As we fine-tune our voice, the fact of this gift may become clear. We may use our voice in song or in poetry. We may use our voice in defense of the voiceless. We may use our voice in praise or adulation then our voice is not merely a means by which we communicate. It is an instrument through which the breath of the world might flow. Our voice is not merely ours. It is the voice of many. 
It is the voice of the life spirit. And as such, it must be allowed to find its way from the depths of our physical bodies so that we may be heard, so that we may join in the glorious cacophony and madness and joy created by the voices of our fellow man, so that our words may be welcomed back into the world. We hope you enjoy today's interviews with Judith Cornell, teacher of the Alexander Technique, and Kathy Plord, founder of Adverb Productions at the University of New England. We hope that in hearing their voices, you may be inspired to find your own. Thank you for joining us. I'm sitting across the microphone from Judith Cornell, who is a certified Alexander Technique teacher here in South Portland, Maine. She handed me a brochure, um, the front of which says, change involves carrying out an activity against the habit of life. It's a quote from F. Matthias Alexander. And I think this is very um, apropos for our radio show because we're often talking about change and we're talking about how one changes. And it really is about trying to figure out um, how to go against things that you've been so habitually doing over time. That's right. That's right. So Alexander Technique is one means of accessing change, not the only way you can do it. But it's absolutely fascinating if you find you enjoy finding more out about yourself, how you handle your daily activities, whatever they are. If you have run up against problems, physical pain or debilitating conditions in the body, how you happen to get that way. Alexander is a means of improving how you handle your body, how you move, how you react to everything um, that's around you. So a means toward change, a means of achieving balance and poise. Why did you become interested in the Alexander Technique yourself? I know that you have a background actually as a singer. I'm a musician, a classically trained soprano. Um, Alexander himself was an actor from Tasmania, (laughs) an island off of Australia. The Alexander Technique has been known, well, it's 100 years old, and it's been known primarily to performing artists as a means of helping them get out of their own way when they do their art. So the world is full of singers who try too hard and get tight and sound like chickens, or violinists with tight shoulders and who have to give up playing because of the pain. I heard about Alexander through singing circles, people who had tried it, a former teacher of mine, a voice teacher who was very much in favor of Alexander work. And I was very curious, but there were not teachers in Maine. So I uh, succeeded in getting um, a teacher to come up from New York and give a workshop at Bowdoin where I was teaching voice. And uh, I found it a, a startling experience. Uh, one, I didn't know what it was exactly, but to find in the middle of a work week when you're really tired that someone can help you to float as you walk down the hallway, for example, or get out of a chair really easily was fascinating. So later on, um, I decided to train as an Alexander Technique teacher, and it's a three-year teacher training program. The nearest one was in Cambridge, Mass. 
So I went there for three years and trained and started teaching back here in Portland in 1992. As I'm talking with you, I'm noticing that you do have a very open posture. We, we ask people to come into the studio and sit on these high stools in front of a microphone, and it's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, but you've somehow managed to relax your shoulders back and your hips are a little open and, and you just have this very comfortable feel about you. Thank you. Does this have something to do with the work that you're trying to get others involved in? Everything. <laughs> because as teachers, one reason for studying for three years is that we have good enough use of ourselves so that we can be a good example to a student. Most Alexander work is done with one student and the teacher. It's hands-on in a very gentle way to guide and to uh, listen with your hands to ascertain where areas of tension might be in the student. And so we want to transmit from our bodies to the student ease, releasing, uh, lengthening and widening so it's easier for the student to start experiencing that. So Alexander Technique is experiential in the sense that if you go to a teacher planning on a series of lessons so that you can start to get a little bit of an idea of, of what it's about and you felt some things changing in yourself. What about this idea that um, people get tighter because they think it's going to help them be more efficient and more effective, but what it really does is just kind of, well, you said the chicken voice. It causes singers to sound yes. like chickens. Yes. Why do you think people get tighter in an effort to get better, but then it doesn't help? Because the mind and the body are one. And whatever you're thinking, for example... I was a singer for many years, and if I looked out and there was not a competitor, but a fellow artist in the first row, it can make you start thinking, gee, I better be good because so-and-so is watching. Um, it tends to make us try too hard and tense the body. And we also go away from, how are things going with me? How does it feel for me? To wonder what they're thinking about me. You know, it, it causes a lot of trouble for performing artists. You have to sort of stay with yourself and your best balance and ease as you go along. Artists tend to be very sensitive. I've worked with a lot of artists of various sorts, you know, um, singers and musicians. And the people who are best at art are also very tuned into their environments and thus very tuned into the people around them. So isn't that somewhat of a challenge if you're a performer and you're tuned into your audience, but at the same time your audience can come back and impact you, not always in a positive way? Isn't that a somewhat of a yes. challenge? Yes, it, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. It's difficult to be... A performing artist and to stay steady within yourself so regardless of what happens out in the audience the reaction of people or somebody gets up and leaves whatever it might be you are not um, distracted by that but you're able to stay with yourself if you're a singer you have to keep breathing you have to keep loose around your vocal mechanism so it's working well do people begin to um, feel inhibited at times? Do they start to, um, I guess the idea would be something like a writer's block, but for singers. Is there kind of an equivalent there? Singers are, are very, very, I taught voice for 30 years. 
um, and being a singer all of that time, have a lot of ways of self-defeating and daring to get up with a lot of people staring at you and to be free and loose enough so that your instrument works is a big challenge. Running through lists of instructions in your mind rather than being able to breathe, be balanced, and just let the song come through you and to your audience is, it's wonderful when it happens, but it takes a lot of time and experience for that to start to happen. And a lot of singers do take Alexander work as one means of trying to get toward that goal. Isn't that an interesting oxymoron, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, that you have somebody who wants to be a performer, and yet they have all these self-defeating thoughts. So you simultaneously want to put yourself out there, but are afraid of putting yourself out there. Yes, yes. Uh, We're uh, an insecure bunch of people. Artists tend to be that way. Very self-critical. There are some very great performers who have been physically ill offstage before they come on to sing. And it seems startling to the fans to know that, but it's true. What are some of the things when you were, um, you you used to work at Bowdoin Bates and Colby Colby, with the music departments and as an instructor? um, Of uh, singing, yes. Of singing. Mm -hmm. So you've done that. You've been a singer yourself. Now you have your own private practice. What are some of the things that people tend to come to you with as complaints? Pain. Something in the workplace that feels uncomfortable, that's given them problems. It doesn't have to be carpal tunnel, but things like sitting at computers for long periods of time, so neck and shoulder and arm discomfort. People who are recovering from surgery, performing artists, cases like that. Most of my uh, students have been performers or people who had pain already and perhaps had tried a lot of other modalities and hadn't been helped. So our work is to examine why do you happen to use your neck, shoulders, and arms too much and cause them eventually to start talking to you and hurting. And if you can change, if you can identify, recognize, and then change that habit, you go about your life differently. Are there emotional and intellectual reasons why people, or social reasons, why people can start to do things um, physically that really don't work for them in a larger way? Oh, sure. I think that's probably how we operate. Expectations of ourselves, what we imagine other people want from us, and in our society, we're very goal-oriented. We're not process-oriented. So we live in our brains thinking, oh, I've got a deadline, or I'm late, or, you know, somebody expects something of me, and I have to deliver it, and it makes tension. So whatever you think in your mind goes into the musculature of the body and into the other systems of the, of the body. So does some of what you are working on have to do with um, helping people understand what's going on with them emotionally, or do you just work It's all with- one. Emotion and body is is the same thing. So it can be an emotional release to free the body. I had the case of somebody who had been a dancer earlier in his life, had had injury, which then precluded his dancing anymore, back, lower back injury. We were just having him walk up and down my studio. And he went down in one direction and he said, 
I'm so happy. <laughs> and I said, good, why is that? And he said, I don't know. It's just a feeling that came over me, feeling of freedom and able to move um, without the pain I was used to, do, to uh, experiencing before. So it made him happy, the emotion came. I understand that in the Alexander Technique, there is a concept called end gaining. Yes, there is. And it is what we were just talking about when your attention is not on what's happening right now, but on the prize. In other words, what you have to achieve down the road. So you're thinking of the end of your endeavors rather than how am I going to get there in the best possible way so that whatever the end might be, it's going to be successful. So we call end gaining that tendency which everybody has. And changing that focus to the means whereby, which is how am I sitting on this stool? How am I talking? How am I breathing? Uh, how am I interacting with you? We'll return to our program in a moment. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long understood the important link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The good news is that we may all be saved by figuring out what to invest in. For the last several years, we've been trying to help get out the message that safe and save are not the same thing. Keeping something safe usually means that it loses some of its usefulness. For example, if you try to keep your money safe through traditional means, you will not spend it or risk it, but instead simply hoard it. When we do this to the things that are valuable, a certain amount of purpose is lost. So the good news is that if you use your money to invest in good food, you may have more abundant energy. If you invest your time in the pursuit of kindness and goodwill, you may have better relationships. If you invest your assets in unsafe things that hedge your risks, you just might end up with a life that is more exciting and in some ways more worth living. And isn't that what SAFE is really all about? Preserving our purpose? To learn more about how to connect your resources to the purpose of your life, please send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. It strikes me that this is very similar to the idea of mindfulness and being fully present. Yeah, it is. But you offer, in addition to the idea of mindfulness, which I think a lot of people understand the concept, you actually offer physical ways of achieving that. Yes, 
Yes. So describe to me some of the ways that you might work with someone who is having a hard time with doing anything other than end gaining. Um, We work on everyday movement. If someone were to come for the first time, and I would explain a little bit and answer some questions, perhaps work on something like being seated in a chair and what are you noticing about that? So it's an everyday thing you do constantly, bringing your attention back to what your body's doing to allow you to balance in an easy way without tension. So you don't slump, you don't have your head falling forward, you don't close on your the front of your body with your arms. We try something a little bit different and I keep uh, bringing their attention back to how it's feeling, asking them what they're noticing. Most people notice a little something, not necessarily everyone. So you take increments. What about uh, vocalizing? Do you ever have people do anything with vocalizing sure. and getting back to sort of the, the breathing. deeper breathing? Well, breathing is a very important part of um, lessening tension in the body, holding and compressing the body happens if we hold our breath. If we're anxious, anticipating something bad is going to happen, it's a defense mechanism, but it's uh, nice if it's not there all the time. If we have a tough job and we find we're holding our breath all day, this is bad. (laughs) So um, examining breathing, how people do it, if it can be loosened and opened up a little bit, let the body occupy all the space it's entitled to, not to be uh, pulled in and down. This occupying of space, I think, is very interesting because there are many people who walk around believing that maybe they're not worthy of occupying space. Do you find that that is true? Yes. So give me an example of someone that you've worked with before that you had the sense they really didn't feel as if they deserved to be out in the world occupying the space that they were meant to occupy. I had an older lady who was a very hardworking employee of a college, and she had a lot of responsibility and deadlines and pressure. And they would be um, worse when there was an event coming up. She was sort of in charge of details. And she had, uh, well, I know she had neck and shoulder tension. I can't now remember if it was also headaches, may have been. Grinding of teeth, it certainly could have been. Very nice person, an older person from a different generation. She asked if what I did might be helpful, and I said, it definitely would if it suits you. Please come and let's find out. So she came over, we had a series of lessons, perhaps four or five, and I was happy, she seemed happy. She finally told me, I don't think I'm going to continue because I don't feel justified in spending this much time on myself. Which kind of set me back a little bit, and I did not say, but of course you deserve to, because it was her beliefs, and that was something that she'd formulated her life around. And I felt sorry for that, and I said, well, please feel free to come back if you'd like to. Could that also apply to people who are um, perhaps 
have either truly been victimized or perceive themselves to have been victimized? Uh, physically. Physically or emotionally or otherwise. Yes, yes. And those emotions can come up if it's something that has been uh, held down or ignored. I can think of some examples during my training course where there were a group of us meeting every day. We got to know one another well. And some of the younger women, I remember, had periods of crying because they could remember as they were trying to let go of holding and protection in their bodies where that habit had begun. In other words, it went back to unfortunate circumstances. What about the idea of shame and people who perhaps they've been in a situation where something has gone wrong and they've felt deeply embarrassed or deeply shamed or even if it's something they haven't done wrong but other people have accused them of something. Does this tend to cause people to be inhibited in themselves? Oh, yes, because all of that is kept in the body in the same sense that a physical injury, if you've had whiplash, your neck will remember that. If I put my hand on the neck of somebody who's complaining of whiplash, you can feel the rigidity in the musculature there. So helping that person to dare let go in a safe uh, environment where they trust their teacher can be very beneficial if they choose to do it, but of course they have to decide to do that. So what we are going for I would like to um, share with our students is how the body itself is wonderfully designed, works beautifully. We all as children sat, ran, squatted, uh, did somersaults with no pain or discomfort. Uh, life teaches us habits, not uh, all of them good ones. And if we can shed some of those, we come closer to the ease and freedom that we had when we were younger. And it's a wonderful feeling. Um, you have a practice in South Portland. Yes. And mm -hmm. you said you've treated things from carpal tunnel to pain to other various constrictions. Yes. Mm -hmm. People who are listening right now, what types of things might they seek you out for in addition to those? I've worked with speakers. I have uh, worked with students who sign for the deaf where there is tension involved in the arms and shoulders from that profession which has a lot of involvement from the hands and arms. I've worked with all sorts of musicians, guitarists, cellists, flute players, violinists, so a little bit of everything really. Yeah, I've been teaching since 1992 in the Portland area. I think I'm the only teacher in Maine. And how can people find you? My telephone number, 772-1984. Uh, you can also access online Alexander Technique. And there is a directory of teachers from our professional organization that's online. And you have something that you'd like to read to us. Well, I thought I could uh, read something that, that seems very clear and precise. We are designed for movement. Whether we are dancing, hammering a nail, working at a computer, singing a song, or walking to the store, we possess an inherent capacity to move naturally. 
Naturalness encourages ease, flexibility, power, and expressiveness. Unwittingly, we often interfere with this design. Energy, delight, and grace give way to effort, tension, and fatigue. The Alexander Technique gives us a working knowledge of the principles which govern human coordination. The Alexander Technique can imbue our lives with time, appreciation, and significance. Well, Judy, thank you for coming in and speaking with me and with all of us who are listening today. I've been speaking with Judith Cornell, who is a certified Alexander Technique teacher and um, instructor to many artists, musicians, and people around the state of Maine. So thank you for all the work you're doing and for talking to us today. My pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. The first time I listened to my voice on this radio program, I was taken back a little. You've got to be kidding. Is that really what I sound like? Fact is, I got so caught up on how I sounded that I didn't really listen to what I was saying. Did I make sense at all? Were my points as a business management professional coming through? But then I considered the fact that since I have passion for helping businesses succeed through proper management, what I was saying was actually coming through. All the years of experience, all the time working with people to make certain their businesses ran smoothly actually did give me perspective. It helped me find my professional voice. Have you been able to find your voice? I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. Boothmain.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. In the studio with us today, we have Kathy Plourd, who is the founder and director of Adverb Productions, which is now associated with the University of New England, but has been a freestanding nonprofit for many years, up until 2011. I first learned about Kathy through TEDx Dirigo, and I'm very pleased to have her coming in to talk to me today. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Kathy, you have um, a lot of different, very important social issues that you've addressed over time. The reason you got into all of this is an interesting story. Talk about that. Mm. I used to teach high school and uh, was an ombudsman for youth that were struggling with 
a list of issues, some of them dealing with uh, their rights in the administration, and some of it dealing with health stuff that people weren't paying attention to, and some of it dealing with safety, so sexual assault, things like that. And um, I was working with a group of people that were, were creating a conference for girls, and a friend of mine in the group said, you know, what this play, uh, this uh, conference needs is a play to start the day. Why don't you write one? So I said, okay. And so one year, one conference led to another conference in another year, which led to other groups around the state creating um, conferences for girls, commissioning plays from me, or asking me to work with groups of youth to create their own play. Um, commissions then came from groups like the Maine Women's Fund, and then strange things like um, the uh, Knox County Coalition Against Tobacco, a commission to play on tobacco cessation. So financial literacy to sexuality to all, you know, all over it. So that's where it started. You spent some time before um, getting really into adverb, going back and kind of um, exploring your roots in the writing world. You were at Breadloaf in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of a big detour. Not really, because I had gone to Breadloaf on a um, special institute. It was an NIH summer institute in theater specifically, which is why I went there and did playwriting and directing and some acting and performing there and was introduced by some of the folks there, uh, Carol McVeigh, Alan McVeigh, a couple other folks whose names I'm not remembering, uh, about using theater and pedagogy and using it specifically as a tool for teaching and using that to break through. So whether you're teaching science and the circulation system in the body or if you're trying to um, teach a social issue or, or a nuance, um, theater's a really amazing tool regardless of the age. So that's where it started for me was in Breadloaf. Playwrights traditionally have run the gamut from people who are providing something that's simply entertaining to people who really are approaching social causes. You could have gone for easy, but Mm -hmm. you chose to go for more challenging. Yeah, somebody once asked me when I was workshopping um, the play You the Man why I did this instead of write real plays. (laughs) When I talked myself back into my chair, I explained that, in fact, these were shows that were not sitting in a drawer wishing someone else would produce them. This was a DIY situation where um, people were not dealing with these issues. And to be fair, it's not just people want to avoid talking about sexual assault with young people or dating violence or eating disorders with young people. We don't know how. We don't know what our resources are. And I think since Adverb began, and even before this work sort of began, before Adverb's inception in 2000, um, the idea here was to not only give people um, information, valuable, clear, accurate information, and to bust through myths and things like that, but to give people an opportunity to think about what they can do. Um, I was workshopping The Thin Line back in, it must have been 1998, and um, a group had asked me if I would remount one of the conference shows from the spring, and I said no, because it was 10 teenagers in the middle of July in Camden. They're busy, it's not gonna happen. How about I uh, workshop my new play? 
I said, and they said, oh, great. Of course, I hadn't written it yet, so this is really fantastic for me, having <laughs> a deadline, um, an audience in advance, and you know, that's very much my muse in that regard. And so I workshopped this um, piece on eating disorders, and a young woman was in the audience. Uh, her friend was the actor I had roped into being the, the performer in that situation, and she gave me a gift, and her gift was, so what? We know our friends are dealing with this. What we do not know is what to do about it. And that really became sort of the litmus test for all of the work. And I'm not saying we've hit that mark every time, but that's been the goal. It's not enough to know that we need to create, you know, that it's hard for uh, youth who are struggling with their gender identity or families who are struggling with their gender identity they're perfectly fine with it but how do we how do we get people to a place where they know what to do or what to say or because things aren't simply um, prescriptive or or um, they're often unique to an individual or situation how do we give people the tools to even begin communicating about it and that's what I love about theater is that you and I, let's say I'm your kid and, and you're my mom and we go to a play and we see this thing about dating violence together, we can talk about that and that. What happened in the play and does that happen to your friends? Do you think that was realistic or are you seeing any of that? So you can have that conversation with me in a way that is not um, as threatening. You know, what are you doing on Saturday night? You know, what are your friends doing? <laughs> it's, a, it's a softer approach, and paradoxically, because of um, the approach, you get closer, and it gets more personal and deeper quite quickly. It's an affective, emotional experience that is shared, and um, that's what we want. We don't want to leave people in a puddle. We want people to really think about, wow, I understand this in a new way, and wow, I see I need to do something, and wow, I actually know where my resources are. This is, in fact, what you or someone has written for the back on the back of this book, Out and Allied, an anthology of performance pieces written by LGBTQ youth and allies. This comes out of Adverb Productions. You've written, it is not enough to just raise awareness. We have to do something, and we need others around us to join in. So what is this interactive piece, this joining in that you're discussing? Because some people think about plays as, I watch, you do, mm -hmm. <laughs> there it goes. Right. Well, most of the time, anybody that comes to see an adverb production or if young people are using the scripts from Out and Allied, um, the people in the audience have not purchased a ticket. Most of the time, they're what I call a captive audience. Uh, for some reason, they are compelled to be there, um, and they probably would not have chosen to do that on, on that particular moment in time. Um, so there's that respect for having... A, um, there's respect for the people in the room. There are people in the room who are connected to the issues. So whether we're talking, again, eating disorders or dating violence, sexual assault, or gender um, spectrum issues, um, there are people who know the issue way, way too well to personally and have a connection to it. And to propose that a play is going to have the answers and to solve it all and make it perfect and we're all going to walk away feeling moved and happy and it, that's not how it works. I want the play to be a starting point. So there's a sense of having respect for the people in the room and respect for their difficulty in approaching the issue, respect for, um, you know, in every room when You the Man is performed, there are survivors. 
it may not be dating violence, but it might have been childhood sexual abuse. Um, or it may have been dating by the person who's um, abusive to them or who has sexually assaulted them might be in the room. And so how do we have this conversation as a community and create safety in the room as well as in the individual seats for, uh, for everyone? That's kind of what we want to do with Adverb is think through a larger process of engaging a community, galvanizing local resources, because you know, the play's a play. The actors are actors. They are going away. And I don't put either myself or the actors or the play itself ahead of what's really important and that people's lives need to be saved. In Out and Allied, there is a piece called uh, What Makes a Man? Hmm. This person writes, I am not gay, but because I stand up for equality, people will assume I'm gay. That's just how society is these days. It just seems as if everyone's chief fear is being accused of being gay, as if it were some sort of Salem witch trial. The difference here is that being gay isn't a bad thing, and neither is supporting gay friends and family. So why are straight men so afraid of being called gay? Is that part of it? that people don't want to be, um, they don't want to stand up because they don't want to somehow be associated with a group that has been uh, marginalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're tapping into that issue of voice really, really clearly. Um, People are afraid to use their voice. Um, There's a list of reasons why we're afraid. It might not be safe. Uh, There might be... um, something to lose. There might be some consequences, whether it be resistance from their own family or their own cultural norm, or, you know, if they're in a locker room and, and someone's, you know, making noise, um, it might not be the right time to interject. And I think we have to honor that. But with this writing, this young man um, actually lives here in Portland. He was an intern with us and helped put the, the manuscript together for the book, uh, Michael Malafont. Um with this, we're offering an opportunity for people to voice. So the plays are not going to give everybody's story, but they're going to give that opportunity for us to hear the other stories. And if we've made it safe in a community to talk about sexual identity or orientation or sexual assault or dating violence um, or eating disorders, we've made it safe to talk about lots of things. So it's partly, I think this idea of empowering people to use voice is in part empowering a community to support hearing and and meeting people who are are using their voice and have things that they need to say. Um, Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And and I'm glad that you're also bringing the work that you're doing to the medical community. I understand that you're working with the University of New England and their medical school. Yeah, that was really a lovely match made in heaven. Um, I've actually had board members over the years who were UNE employees and um, uh, sort of at the end of Adverb's existence as a nonprofit, um, I told my board, look, I've got about two more years here. This is hard. It's uphill. You know, frankly, we never recovered from um, the the recession in 2008. So much of our funding was fee-for-service. So we've been relying on grants and uh, donor support. And um, I can keep doing this for two more years, or 
here's an opportunity. Uh, one of our board members worked at the University of New England. He's an associate dean uh, at the Westbrook College of Health Professions. And he said, you know, we've been working together all along. I've gone into his classes numerous times. And if you look at your mission of uh, theater for health and wellness education, and you look at the University of New England's mission of health and wellness education, there's a beautiful fit here. And so um, it's been wonderful to take on, it sounds so strange, to take on domestic violence um, issues with the medical community or the folks who are training to be our health professionals um, with these issues that are not easy for them. They're just like anybody else. You know, why would it be easier for, you know, a doctor or a nurse or somebody to take on and start talking about domestic violence? How many times have I heard the story of, yeah, yeah, a nurse screened and she said, well, oh, we have to ask, um, you're not in in a violent situation at home, are you? And And they have communicated in a way that clearly says, this is how you're supposed to answer this question. I'm not willing to hear yes. And what is that healthcare professional afraid of in the yes. They're afraid that they won't know what to do. They're afraid they won't know how to fix it. They're afraid that in the, you know, lovely um, restrictive healthcare system we have right now, that in the eight and a half minutes they have to talk to somebody, they can't really serve the person. So if you can't serve them, let's not open the the can of worms. The other issue here is that people are um, coming to health professions like anybody else with their own histories and own stories. And so Part of what may get in the way of them wanting to hear yes is they haven't dealt with their own stuff on this. And we have found that when we've presented the work on domestic violence um, to the students uh, training as health professionals, that there's been, surprise, surprise, an uptick in the counseling services and their notation of reason for uh, seeking services, um, history with violence. With this, we're educating our um, staff and faculty at UNE that if a student is having some problems, you don't just nod your head empathetically, you do something about it. And you you offer to um, listen to them, you offer to uh, connect them to the resources on campus. So there's this, there's this whole shift in um, helping people understand we've got to deal with this issue and what is amazing is the um, adverse childhood experiences study which was a study by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente 18,000 people and the idea here is that huh there's a correlation between uh, adverse childhood experiences such as abuse and long-term health effects Um, It's kind of a no-brainer if you think about it they've also found that the um, higher the cluster higher the number of these adverse experiences, hmm, the higher the incidence of uh, chronic illness and long-term health effects. So if you know as a healthcare provider that your patient has um, some issues with depression, and if you know that they are someone who has a history of violence or has it going on in their life right now, you need to really take a closer ear to this. And we've moved from um, I don't mean to be dismissive uh, by this, but sort of garden variety depression to a higher incidence of suicidality and suicide ideation. So you've got to step in in a whole new way. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. 
Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. Years ago, when I would go out in the desert with my shaman, I studied with him for four years in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, we would go visit the grandmother trees or we'd go visit the stone people and we would name those places and we'd call those places out. And it's important in your own landscape to call those places out, to name those places, to give it a name. Once you give something a name, it sort of stays with you forever, and it, and it, and it has a deeper and richer meaning. And there's areas in your, on your property that can be called out and named as well. And I do that often with people, and I'll even put it in their designs, and I'll, I'll name it for them sometimes. <laughs> and the name sticks. Years later, I'll go back and they'll say, oh, yes, we're going to go out to the place, the, the, the worship garden. And I called it out as a worship garden, and they remembered that. So just name areas of your property and call them out. I think you'll find it to be quite meaningful. And, and put a piece of art, put a piece of sculpture out there. Do something that, that gives that place recognition. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. At the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we believe we are helping to build a better world with the help of many. We like to bring to you people who are examples of those building a better world in the areas of wellness, health, and fitness. To talk to you today about one of these, fitness, is Jim Greterix, the president of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Here's Jim. Did you watch the Olympics last year and see the athletes wearing that funky tape on their shoulders and wonder what the heck is that deal? Well, it's called kinesiology athletic tape, and it works like an orthopedic brace without limiting range of motion. It provides stability for muscles, joints, and tendons, and helps reduce pain while maintaining flexibility for better support and increased endurance. So if you have knee, shoulder, ankle, or foot pain, or have that one muscle that just flares up after increased activity, come in and have our staff help you out. We'll have you performing like an Olympic beach volleyballer in no time. I'm Jim Graterex, president of Black Bear Medical. Come on in and see our trained staff down at 275 Marginal Way and at www.blackbearmedical.com. It does seem interesting to me as we're talking that a lot of these topics are kind of interwoven where, you know, if you're somebody who has a history, and not always, but if there is someone who has a history of uh, violence in the home or dating violence, um, it's possible that they're more likely to have an eating disorder. Absolutely, yeah. Just a lot of these things that are adverse childhood events and even adult events, they're all kind of interconnected. Very much, very much. So when you open this Pandora's box, and you see that all of these things are sort of crawling around. Mm-hmm. Um, what what happens next? 
Mm. Well, naming it is often the first step. Being seen, having your voice heard, <laughs> it comes right back to, to voice. But I think we've got to um, consider the so what. Like that young woman said to me many years ago, so what are we going to do about it? And in fact, there is a social and I think even a moral accountability here to not turn a blind eye. And um, even just naming it um, and telling somebody I see this is, um, there's a woman, for example, who I've worked with for many, many years who does uh, domestic violence work. And she shared with me not too long ago a story of having been in the ER for, a, uh, you know, injuries brought on by abuse and nobody in the hospital said a thing. Then, as she was leaving, she was out almost to the parking lot, this guy ran out and said, here's a number. I, I, I want you to call him if you would, please, because he saw it. And that, she said, was the beginning of her being able to take a step for herself, for her to find her own voice. So I think that there's this interesting connection between you know, what does it mean to empower somebody? What does it mean to allow voice? A part of it is just being witness and letting people know that. Um, a wonderful thing uh, another woman from the domestic violence community said to me once is that um, if you say nothing, you have actually chosen to stand with the abuser or the bully or the, the whatever here, that in fact there's a complicity in silence. And that's really what's behind Adverb's work is to break that silence, A, but B, to add, if you will, the verb, to add the action. What, what are we going to do about it? Because it's really, really not enough to just raise awareness. You and I had a conversation about um, perhaps art or plays that somehow kind of pick a, open up a, a wound, but then leave there nowhere to go. People yeah. can be deeply impacted by something that they see or they hear and really shaken, but it's not really, it's not really a safe way of right. you know, having these feelings because then they leave, say they leave the play, and what do you do with it? Yeah. Well, I think an artist is an artist and they have whatever creative reign and license they wish to have. Um, Adverb's work is almost exclusively captive audience. And in that case, I feel like I have more of a responsibility to respect the fact that they may not have had a choice to be there and I don't wish to dump on them. Uh, sometimes people use theater and art in a magical, wonderful way to move them through an issue. You know, they're giving voice to that abuse or that story or that, you know, what, however big or small it may seem to anybody else, it doesn't matter. It's their own journey and their own story. And, you know, honestly, some of that probably should either stay in your diary or um, stay with your therapist or invite a close group of friends um, who are consenting <laughs> and, and are okay sit holding witness in that space. There's stuff that I think sometimes abuses an audience and I, I just, I'm uncomfortable with that as an artist myself. Kathy, how can fi people find out about Adverb? Well, adverb is spelled with two Ds. You should know that because it's adding the verb. And uh, we're at the University of New England, so we're at the une.edu uh, quick links page. 
Um, I've got a blog that I'm keeping up with right now, um, chronicling our um, translation of the play You the Man into Australian. Uh, it's about to be used down under in a statewide initiative in Victoria, which is very, very exciting. And yes, it meant I had to go there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, online is a great place to find us. Um, and you'll find some great book trailers that students have created about um, Out and Allied, and we've got lots of resources. So please come find us, volunteer, get on our mailing list, send us money. <laughs> whatever you like and they can also watch the TEDx Dirigo talk yes yes that's um that's kind of embarrassing <laughs> but yes <laughs> you could well it's I, I've watched it I think it's worth worth paying attention to I mean you have you you have your talk and then you also have a bit of um I guess it's a portion of one of the plays that you yep, do? two of the plays are featured in there and I guess it's embarrassing because I'm you know the work is meant to be without me um, I'm not used to putting myself front and center. I sort of stand at the side of the work and monitor it, but um, it's really, it's really not about me. So, well, we thank you for joining us today because today it is about you and it is about the work that you've um, done with the, with Adverb. And I appreciate all of the. Well, I guess I appreciate the the spotlight that you've been able to shine on issues such as domestic violence and eating disorders. Um, Thanks. I encourage people to go take a look at what you're doing. Thanks. We'd love to take a show to anybody's community, so let us know. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 98, Finding Voice. Our guests have included Judith Cornell and Kathy Plourd. For more information on our guests and extended versions of their interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. I'd like to let you know about a special event coming up on August 1st and 2nd at the Astaku Inn in Northeast Harbor. This is Artworks to benefit the Land and Garden Preserve. The Land and Garden Preserve, a nonprofit organization on Mount Desert Island committed to maintaining and preserving woods and trails in that area, will be hosting an art sale at the Astaku Inn in Northeast Harbor. The lands and gardens of the preserve have inspired area artists for over 50 years and they have invited a select group of current artists to create original work for this special two-day exhibit. The purpose of this event is to raise funds for the preserve, encourage artists to experience wonderful landscapes, and provide an opportunity for the public to enjoy their original images and reflections in one setting. Proceeds from the sales will equally benefit the artists and the preserve. For more information on artworks to benefit the Land and Garden Preserve, visit gardenpreserve.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.com. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our Finding Voice show and hoping that you will be encouraged to find your own voice. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, 
Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.